I cannot dance like Janet Jackson. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, uh, it's not it's not a fun Sunday if something doesn't go wrong. So glad you're worshiping with us today. My name is Jen Mangloss. I'm the associate pastor here. And, uh, you know, reopening has been on my mind a lot lately, probably on yours as well, as uh, we see changes in our social distancing. Uh, you might notice some changes coming in today. Our seats are a little closer, things like that. Uh, which is a little strange, uh, but uh, it's gotten me thinking as I've been looking online and seeing what it looks like in different countries. Um, I've been seeing the Camino de Santiago opening up more and more, and people are starting to walk it. And the Camino is this pilgrimage that goes through Spain, um, and I got to walk it a few years back. And uh, seeing people start walking it again has brought back these memories for me of my time on the Camino. And what's come to mind this week as I've been thinking and prepping for this sermon and praying is this meal I had once with a couple of bike riders. So on the Camino, you walk 500 miles, but you don't have to do it on foot. You can actually uh, ride a horse or you can ride a bike. And so a lot of people choose to do bike because they don't have over a month to go uh, walk across Spain. And as a person who walked it, we kind of didn't like the bike riders because you'd be trudging along and then all of a sudden, this bike would just zoom past. And it was nothing that they did per se, but it was like, oh, I want to be going that fast. Why can't I be going that fast? Um, and so, and also, you know, we just didn't get a, a chance to connect with these bike riders because they stayed at different um, accommodations usually. But one night, I stayed at this hostel, and there were some bike riders there. And we all shared dinner together, which is kind of tradition on the Camino. You, you share meals with the people you're staying with. And we start talking, me and this one bicyclist. And I just kind of open up and say, it's really demoralizing to see you guys speed off. And I, say, and I was just kind of insinuating that it was a little easier for them. And the guy goes, he's like, yeah. He goes, you know, some of it's easier for us and some of it's harder because, like, going up a hill, like, the Pyrenees on a bike is challenging. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is. And over this meal, this sh as we broke bread together, something shifted between us. And so the next day, I'm out walking, bike rider zooms by, but this time it's my friend who I met last night. And I waved at him, and I actually meant it. I was like, oh, like I wished him peace. We, we say have this greeting, buon camino, good camino, good way. Um, and something shifted in me over that meal. And I think there's something special that happens when we break bread together. Uh, and I actually think it has something really important to say about today's uh, topic on the fruit of the Spirit. But first, let's pray. So Jesus, we can talk so much about these fruit of your spirit, but Lord, we want to become the kind of people for whom this is natural, for whom fruit overflows in our life. So Lord, by your spirit, would you do this work in our hearts today? Amen. So we're on fruit number three, uh, if you've been keeping track. Uh, we've been going through the fruit of the spirit this summer. Uh, we've gone over love and joy, and today we are on peace, uh, which is apparently the banana sticker. Oh, wait, that's so weird. That looks like a banana sticker, but that is a lemon. Uh, I had someone ask, like, what's the sticker going to be this week? Uh, it helps if you look before. So, so today we're talking about peace. And if you turn on the TV, you go online, however you get news, uh, or just find out what's going on in the world, you quickly see that we exist in a world without much peace. Uh, just this morning, I was reading the New York Times and reading about how Haiti is just... It's chaotic there since the president was assassinated this week, um, and they're trying to figure out who's in charge and what's going on. But uh, 
along with this you know, fact that our world is not at peace, we also have this deep desire for peace, and we see this reflected all around. Uh, I can think of like a million and one sayings on peace, you know, peace and love, man. All we are saying is give peace a chance, and can't we all just get along? And like, I laugh at it, but actually, like, like yeah, I actually do want peace. But I think uh, the movie that says it best, if you've ever seen the classic film, Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock, uh, Bet you didn't think you were coming to church to hear about that today, did you? Uh, there's a classic scene where it's the interview portion of the competition, and every contestant's asked, what's the one thing our world needs right now? Does anyone know what it is? Peace. World peace. Oh, we've all just won the beauty pageant. Good job, guys. Uh, so there are countless of quotes on peace and ideas of, on peace and theories on how to become people of peace. And yet for all the beautiful quotes and ideas, we still struggle to find it in our world. But what do we mean when we say peace? Uh, and so just a second, uh, just turn to your neighbor, say hello, and just say, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? I'll give you a second. Discuss. And online, you can put that in the chat. All right, I'm gonna bring you back in. Sorry, that was really short. But uh, if you're willing to, for those here, if you wanna shout out, what, what's the word that you shared? What, what did you share when you, what's the thing that comes to mind when you hear peace? Jesus, ooh, that's a good answer. Good job, Harmony. <laughs> Someone else, what comes to mind when you hear the word peace? Quiet, yeah. Was that calm? Yeah, calm. Ooh, comfort. Yeah, I think these are all great, guys. I think we're all in the same realm here. Uh, you know, and peace, as much as like we could all say, yeah, that's peace, that's peace, it's kind of a tricky word. A few weeks ago, uh, I'm always interested in word meaning, but a few weeks ago we were talking about love. And I was saying how, you know, we have one word in English to express all these different meanings for love, but in Hebrew has four different words, and it kind of helps us get clear on, oh, this is what the... This is what uh, the author's talking about here. But we don't have that today. We have just one word uh, for peace. And, uh, and I heard someone say it already. In Hebrew, it's shalom. And in Greek, it's irene. And in the Bible, this word can refer, refer to a lot of things, but it can, also, it can mean wholeness, like a completeness. Richard spoke about that in our MRJR video. It can mean prosperity, the absence of hostility, um, it actually can refer to the welfare of those who are fighting in a war. That one I thought was interesting. Um, it can mean an interstate of calm, goodness, a covenant of peace between people, relational peace, and it can even be a greeting. I was talking to someone this morning and said, you always send your emails, peace. It's like, I do. Uh, stole it from the Bible. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of different ways that the word peace is used. And so as with both love and joy, we have to get clear on what we mean and kind of specifically, what is Paul talking about here when he says peace is a fruit of the Spirit? So in the New Testament, writers speak about peace as a way of being with others, pursuing relationships. And so I think this is interesting. It's relationally connected. And relationships that are founded on love, loyalty, and care. These peacemaking relationships are hallmarks of God's kingdom. And it's exactly what Paul's talking about in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, this is peace as relational wholeness. And Walter Brueggemann, I think, says this perfectly. 
The vision of wholeness, of shalom, which is the supreme will of the biblical God, is the outgrowth of a covenant of shalom, in which persons are bound not only to God, but to one another in a caring, sharing, rejoicing community with none to make them afraid. I think that's kind of beautiful. It's like, yeah, that's what we're going for. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Galatians. Uh, but if we're talking about peace and the need for peace, it implies that there's conflict. It implies that we don't all just get along with each other, that there's disagreement, fighting. You make peace with those who are different from you, who disagree with you. And Paul speaks to this peace, peacemaking of this kind quite a bit in Romans 14 and 15. And he speaks us to a community that's struggling in conflict. So we're going to pop over to, if you got your Bible or your phone, we're going to look at Romans 14, starting in verse 19, but it'll be up on the screen. So, let us therefore make every effort, not some efforts, or the minimal effort, but every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So this letter uh, to the Roman church is addressing this really diverse community that's experiencing conflict because of their, their differences. So the church in Rome is made up of some people who came from a non-believing, non-Christian, non-Jewish background and some people who came from a Jewish background. And as you might expect, they grew up with different values and that was impacting how they approached life with God. Some of the big questions which we heard referenced here, is it okay, like what type of meat is it okay to eat? Like can you eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol or not? For a Jewish person, that is like a big no-no. But uh, for, a, for a non-Jewish Christian, it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, or something like observing the Sabbath. Do we observe it on the traditional day? Does Sabbath need to be a day? Does it need to be just this peace we have with God and rest we have with him at all times? These are the things that were coming up, these areas of conflict. And I have to say, as I read this and I look at things today in the church and go, I'm so glad we're done with that. Right? <laughs> oh, wait, we're not. We've still got a long ways to go. And, but there's something comforting in knowing, wow, even in the early church, this is stuff they were figuring out is how do our values impact how we follow Jesus and what are the things that everyone's supposed to do? What are the things that are optional? It gets messy. Uh, and so we start in the church. This is the starting place for peacemaking. But it's actually something that flows into our communities. That's the picture. We are to be peacemakers in a world that struggles to live in peace uh, with God and each other. And I think it's interesting that Paul's vision of peacemaking, it isn't so much about getting the other person to agree with you, like winning someone over to your side of the argument, which that's so frustrating because I like to get people to think what I think, but uh, he's actually talking more about accepting the other as your family member in Christ. So my dad and I are both incredibly stubborn people. Uh, I think it's just a genetic thing in our family. But uh, we get together and we'll talk and there's a lot we agree on. And there's a lot we disagree on. And we'll get into these disagreements and sometimes they get really heated because we both are like, no, I'm right. And there can be times where it's tempting to just go, I'm cutting off dad, like I don't want to deal with that. I don't agree with what you say. Um, but what I have found is what continues to bring me back to relationship with him is love. Oh, I actually love this person in front of me. Yeah, I disagree with them. Sometimes they drive me crazy. But I love them. I love my dad. 
It's willing to put up with the messiness and to try to make peace with him for the sake of love. Because remember, love is the supreme fruit of the Spirit. The rest of these fruits, everything else listed after love, kind of is secondary. Because all these other fruits flow from this core of love. And so this peacemaking is birthed out of a love for the other person. So we could talk all day about what peacemaking is, but I actually want us to shift into looking at who models this way of peacemaking. Because we don't need another idea about peace as much as we need to learn peacemaking from someone who's actually doing that. And as Christians, Sunday school answer here, guys, we start with Jesus. Shocker, right? (laughs) But... uh, It is really where we need to start. Uh, Ephesians 2.14 tells us that Christ, not anyone else, but Christ is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus made peace with us through his death and resurrection. And uh, because of that, we're now at peace with God. But I want to invite you to look a little deeper, uh, specifically into the life of Christ. Because Jesus didn't just perform this big act of peace and reconciliation through his crucifixion. um, And that kind of made up for everything else in his life. It wasn't like, well, that's going to cover everything so I can be a jerk the rest of the days. No, Jesus actually lived as a peacemaker every moment of his life. And there's a lot of verses we can look to to see this on display. But I want us to focus on how he did this by sharing a cup. Maybe a hydro flask. uh, (laughs) And sharing a table. So let's start first with peace and peacemaking as a shared cup. So now we're going to look over to the book of John, and we'll have a couple of stories from John today. John 4, and this might be a familiar story for some of you. We're going to look at the Samaritan woman. So we're in John 4.4. Again, it'll be on the screen. I think it already is. There we go. Great job back there, Roger. Thank you. Grateful for our entire team that makes all this possible. But uh, Jesus, oh, so now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. So Jesus is on his way from Judea to Galilee. And there was a direct route and an indirect route to get there. And uh, the direct route had you go through Samaria. So you save some time. But the indirect route completely avoided Samaria. So if you were a Jewish person... You took the indirect route because you did not want to go, you didn't want to even risk seeing, interacting, passing by someone, someone who's a Samaritan. Well, why is this? That's a good question. I'm hoping you're asking that question. I'm assuming. Go with me, guys. There was a long history of violence between these two groups. Uh, the Jewish people and the Samaritans, interestingly, both worshipped the God of Abraham, but they deliver, uh, differed on belief of where they were supposed to worship. So they believe, um, the Jewish people believed God had instructed Moses to build an altar for worship uh, in Jerusalem. And for the Samaritans, they thought it was supposed to take place uh, on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And so because of this difference, and some other ones, but mostly this difference, what ensued was years of violence, uh, contempt, condemnation towards each other, um, really big redirects um, when they're traveling. So Jesus, knowing all this, being a good Jewish, Jewish uh, man, instead of taking the indirect route, chooses to go into Samaria. Doesn't seem like an accident, does it? So what might that look like? Just curious for all of us, myself included, what might that look like to take the first step in with your enemy? To take a step out of your areas of comfort into their areas, the areas where they have jurisdiction over. Let's go back to our verse. Uh, We're starting now in verse 6. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So, we have all this history of the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Bad blood there. And then we have this woman who shows up at a well at noon. So, noon is, what, the hottest part of the day? Just about, full sun? If you were going to go take a huge pot of water and carry it, would you want to take it around at noon? No, you'd probably want to go in the morning, right? And that's when most women did go, was in the morning. And this group of women would go out. It was a community thing. You hang out with the women, get your water, talk, and connect. This woman's not part of that group. She's been ostracized. She's not at peace with her community. And she's, uh, we'll find out in a little bit why. But Jesus starts with a basic request to her. Will you give me a drink? This entry point leads to a conversation on living water. And it intrigues her. She asks for this living water, and then this is where Jesus takes a turn, and this kind of abstract conversation becomes deeply personal. He tells her in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're right. Uh, the, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, this is key here, guys, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, and wait for this, guys, big mic drop coming up. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Whew, a lot going on there, Right? So here's what I want us to notice, because there's so many things going on here, but uh, let's laser focus in. According to the cultural norms of this time, Jesus should not be engaging, A, with a Samaritan, but B, with a woman. They should not be alone. That is like all sorts of, crossing all sorts of taboos. But Jesus crosses multiple boundaries, making peace across culture, across gender, and as well in a, just a really personal way between her and God, he's kind of just bringing peace at every angle. Like I'm kind of just imagining he's like, here's peace, and here's peace, and here's peace. Everywhere you turn, there's peace. Uh, and that's so not what we see in our world, is it? And so what does peacemaking look like here in this story we've just heard? Well, it starts with Jesus leaving his territory for another's, going to a place where he, he isn't welcome necessarily. It means uh, Jesus asking good questions and showing up with curiosity and wonder. It means a request for hospitality. Jesus isn't the one uh, offering hospitality here. He's asking for it. He comes with a desire to engage. He comes ready to listen. But let's jump ahead to John 21 because we see another moment where Jesus brings peace. And this time is at a shared table. So after Jesus' resurrection, uh, 
he had some unfinished business with Peter. And so one day he goes to Peter's work. Peter's a fisherman, so by seeing Peter at work, that means going to the, to the sea, maybe going near a boat. Uh, and Peter's there. Peter's there with a few of his disciples. And you get the sense that maybe he's running away from Jesus. Like, there's some, there's some history there. Uh, but Jesus performs this miracle, overflows the boat with fish. Jesus, uh, Peter being the impulsive person he is, dives out of the boat to meet Jesus on the land. And then Jesus offers Peter and all the disciples this invitation. Come and have breakfast. It's a good invitation. I was like, Jesus, you can invite me to breakfast anytime. But none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. So I imagine, you know, these are Jesus' closest friends, They traveled together. They spent a lot of time together. They probably shared quite a few meals together. We don't often see that in the Bible, but we can assume. If you're traveling all these miles, there were some meals in there. But there's something special about this meal on the shore, roasting some fish over the fire, sharing this picnic together at this metaphorical table before Jesus ascends into heaven. And yet there must have been something really familiar and comfortable for everyone here. Jesus puts the disciples at ease as they eat this shared meal together. Food has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Just makes you feel just like you can exhale. When's a time when you were put at ease while sharing a meal with someone else? But as the meal finishes, Jesus turns to Peter saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Meaning the disciples. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus replies, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Once again, Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked this three times. I'd be upset too. Uh, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So here's what you need to know about Peter at this point. He betrayed Jesus. No, he didn't turn him in for silver like Judas. But three times, in the presence of someone who really wouldn't have caused him much harm, three times he denied knowing Jesus. And Jesus asks, do you love me? Jesus asks three times three denials, three declarations of love. (laughs) This interaction is sometimes referred to as Peter being reinstated. And when I first was reading this, my assumption was, oh, he's being reinstated in ministry. But I actually think there's something deeper happening here. Peter's being reinstated in relationship with God. Reinstated in relationship specifically with Jesus. Because this is Jesus seeking out Peter, even though Peter should be the one seeking out Jesus. Peter should be the one asking for forgiveness. But this is Jesus clearing the air and making peace within his family. Those disciples, they spent so much time together. They were family to each other. And there was, there was a lack of peace there. But Jesus stepped out of his way, went all the way out to this boat to see Peter at work, to offer him peace, to offer him love. So what do these stories tell us about how Jesus embodied peacemaking? One, Jesus shows up with humility. He doesn't wait for people to come to him. He goes to them. He goes out of his way to make peace. He accepts them. He's not asking them to agree with him. 
Second, Jesus makes peace by showing up hospitably. He asks questions. He listens. He invites them into a counter, an encounter. He asks things like, will you give me a drink? Do you love me? So if this is how Jesus engaged his world as a peacemaker, then how do we do that, right? These are the big questions. How do we cultivate peace, not just in our lives, but in our communities? Because this is never just for the sake of just, like, making us peaceful people, and that's it. This is peace that's to flow into our communities, every part. The, the type of peace that our world is desperate for. So if you read on with both the Samaritan woman and Peter, you see the Samaritan woman went back to her community to tell them about Jesus. She made the first step with the people who had ostracized her. She made peace with her community, and a lot of them made peace with God. And then there's Peter, who, instead of leaving the church, um, was brought back into community. And he was this, he's considered the leader of the early church. Um, within the Catholic tradition, um, the first pope is considered Peter. And if you read Acts, you see that Peter was the one who was really spearheading this early church movement. But Peter made space and offered hospitality so that Christians could come together to worship God. Through their experiences with Jesus, they too became peacemakers. So a couple of weeks ago, Richard was here preaching on joy, our second fruit of the Spirit. And kind of similarly, we're considering peace as something we receive from God more than being based on external circumstances. Because externally, things are kind of crazy, right? Like even though things are reopening, I think we're all like, I don't know if I trust that. Like it doesn't feel like things are fully at peace. We need that peace from God. And that starting point is remembering that first and foremost, before anything else, me, you, you online, I'm pointing at you, uh, we are all people who have been the recipient of peace through Christ. It's this equalizing truth. None of us got to escape that. None of us are, had our lives figured out enough that we didn't need to make peace. But because of that equalizing truth, we enter in, in humility. We kind of enter in both, all of us on our knees. But it's humility that allows us to go out of our way to make peace, to listen to the person whose ideas differ from ours, who's willing to take the first step, the first step towards repair, towards reconciliation. And maybe for you right now, taking the first step of humility is to look at a relationship where you're experiencing conflict. Ouch, I know, right? But what's one way you can show up in humility there? What makes you similar to this person? How might you enter into their territory as an act of peacemaking? But in this humility, we pursue this way of forgiveness and reconciliation. This video we watched today from Richard, we talked about this. Uh, Richard talks about this word shalom, this idea of wholeness. This is the hope that we're going for. Uh, Brenda Salter-McNeil, who we've been going through a lot of her content and books on reconciliation, has this to say about this. Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. And I love that. All creation to flourish. That's what we're hoping for. And that's what God's peacemaking does in our world. Leads us into people of reconciliation so that all can flourish. And we have a long way to go because a lot of people aren't flourishing right now. But we also believe that God, through his spirit, can do that work in our community. And I think one of the beautiful ways to start this process is through hospitality. So when I was younger, hospitality always meant a lot of food. And, you know, welcoming your people, uh, people into your house for a good meal. 
But the older I get, the more I realize that hospitality uh, is way deeper and more diverse in its expressions. I can make someone felt, feel welcome by giving them my time and attention. Or by not, uh, by instead of dominating the conversation, actually listening to their story. I'm saying that to myself. I'm such a talker, you guys. <laughs> I can offer it by listening with wonder and curiosity instead of judgment. Hospitality at its core is about creating space for another person who bears the image of God. And because they bear the image of God, no matter what they have to say or do, they are worthy of being listened to and received. Henry now, and he's one of my favorite writers. I feel like every time I'm preaching, I'm quoting from good old Henry. But he says that hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place, where the Holy Spirit can do that. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, not getting people to agree with us, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. Who wants that? Yeah. And here's the deal. Hospitality isn't just about food, but I actually think food is one of the most powerful ways for people to connect and feel welcomed. I recently watched a film called Oslo that's on HBO, and it's a fictional account of the Oslo Peace Accords. I knew nothing about this, so let me tell you what, what happened there. Um, in Norway in the 90s, through some diplomatic back channels, um, a couple brought together representatives from uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, groups that to this day don't get along. And they thought, maybe we can try to bring peace about in a different way. So these men would gather, and they would go into a room, and they'd discuss how to make peace. They'd try to come to some sort of um, agreement. But then they'd leave the room, and they had to kind of leave all that behind, and they'd share a meal together. And at the beginning, you're kind of wondering, is this going to work? Because anytime like, someone says something, the other person gets really defensive and reacts. And it's like the simplest things. You're like, how did they get angry over that? But there's so much anger and frustration built up between these two groups. So that first night, and you're, everyone's kind of like, I don't know if this is working, they come out for dessert. And the chef comes out with this tray full of waffles and a big pile of whipped cream and fresh berries. Oh my gosh, are you hungry yet? And she puts it down and starts serving them. And these tough men with their big defenses up just start to melt over waffles. (laughs) And they were able to see each other's humanity and the shared love of good food and being the fact that We need food to eat, and yet as humans, we make it into such a beautiful gift of a meal. We make it into art. And something in that exchange changed things in these men. And they actually did come to an agreement, and it didn't end up ultimately working out, but it's probably the closest these two parties have ever come to making peace between each other. And I keep coming back to that lately, the last few weeks, thinking there's something about with food, the way that food can open doors of communication how it can put us at ease with each other. I think of the bike riders from my experience on the Camino, the way that sharing a meal together brought us together like nothing else could. And so as we prepare to close for today, a question I'll leave you to think about is, who might you invite to share a meal with, to share some humanity with whom you've avoided? Because we kind of tend to share our meals only with people we like, who we want to spend time with, But in peacemaking, we go out of our comfort zone and say, hey, I actually want to get to know you a little better. 
I actually think you're valuable, even if I disagree with you. And so kind of my thought for us today is what if a vision of peacemaking is one that involves coming together to a common table? Um, as I was thinking through this last year of like me as a pastor and my pastoral call, this idea of radical hospitality keeps coming to mind of like, what is it to continue to welcome people to the table, even when they make me feel uncomfortable, even when I disagree with them? But isn't that the kingdom of God? And we see this, the place of food and feasting as being this really beautiful picture throughout the Bible. Because we start, if you notice, we start with uh, in Genesis with the image of a garden, a garden that's full of produce, full of seed-bearing and greed plants for food. This is the nutrition we all need for sustenance. We read about the Passover meal, which commemorates God's protection over the Jewish people in Egypt. This meal would bring people together and still does uh, as a way to remember the work of God. Just two weeks ago, we learned about joy and the wedding feast Jesus provided the wine for. This feast was able to continue. It didn't stop because of Jesus' miracle. We see it in the love feasts of the early church in the book of Acts. If you want to read about what the church looked like then, they would share these massive meals together. It's beautiful. Uh, But we see it most powerfully, this image of the table bringing people together. We see that in the Last Supper. And I think it's really interesting that for all the images that Christ could have used as a representation of his peacemaking with humanity, that he chooses a meal. And so in light of that, that's actually what we're going to do today. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. So you might be wondering what that table is there. I'm going to tell you. Um, This is our banqueting table today. And we're going to feast with each other. Uh, I wish I had a little more than bread and wine, but we know that'll be enough. Uh, When you're ready, Dylan's going to come up and play some music. When you're ready, we have about 12 seats, so we'll just go up um, a few people at a time. I want you to take a seat at the table, anywhere you'd like, and wait for someone to come sit across from you. I realize this might be a little uncomfortable, so I'm asking you f- to go with me on this. But when the, someone comes and sits across from you, introduce yourselves. You can bump elbows, shake hands if you're feeling comfortable with that. We do have hand sanitizer on the table. But after you introduce your t- each other, yourselves to each other, I want you to serve each other communion. Um, and when you do... We have a basket of bread, so it's all pre-cut. You don't have to uh, hand someone food. You can just hand them the basket. But the person will take the bread, and you can say, this is the body of Christ broken for you, Julia, or whoever, whatever their name is. And then you'll offer them, we have little cups, the blood of Christ shed from you. And here's my challenge. I know a lot of us know each other. Some of us don't. I'd love to challenge you to sit across someone who you don't know well or maybe don't know that well. And let this be an act of peace between you, whether or not you think you need it. Um, And for those of you who are online, we have not forgotten you. We have a Zoom uh, link to a Zoom room where you can go and share communion together as well. But let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. And uh, if that doesn't feel comfortable to you right now, that's totally okay. But I do want to invite you to experience this act of coming to the table together. So let me pray. Jesus, food matters in your kingdom. Uh, Not just because it nourishes our body, but it's a way in which we get to delight in in your creation, 
creation of each other, the creation of food, the creation of artistic talents that make food taste really good. And we come to the table unified by the fact that we have all received peace through you. We come unified that we are created in your image. That because of that, we have dignity, not because of anything we bring to the table, but only because of you. And so, Lord, help us to uh, show up to the table today in humility and hospitality. Help us to make space for each other. Teach us your way of peacemaking, Lord. Amen.